This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you're a regular listener and you like what you hear, don't forget to like, comment and share. And if you're new, make sure you subscribe too. Now, this week, as we approach St. George's Day on the 23rd of April, we're investigating the man, the myth and the legend, and also the sites connected with the story. Joining me to unravel the secrets of the patron saint of England is Senior Properties Historian for English Heritage, Dr. Michael Carter. A happy St. George's Day, even if it's a few days early. <laughs> well, thanks for coming back to the podcast and talking to us about this important saintly figure and this historical figure as well. Let's start with the historical aspect, Michael, first. What do we know about the man behind the myth? Do we know when and where he lived, for example? We don't know that much about him, but we can say with some confidence that he lived and died in around about the year 303. That's the date in which the Roman Emperor Diocletian launches the last great persecution of the Christian faith, that he died for his Christian faith, and the earliest evidence we have for him, it's an inscription from the mid-4th century, is from Syria, and it seems to indicate that he was from the modern-day Middle East. The inscription was discovered in a place called Shaka in the Haran, which is in the southwest of modern-day Syria. Right. And it commemorates the holy and triumphant martyrs, George and the saints who suffered with him. And what did they suffer from? What sort of persecution was it? Well, the Roman Emperor Diocletian, who is associated with a great revival of the Roman Empire, which had been seemingly in terminal decline in the third century, really does pull things around. And he launches a big persecution of this Christian church in 303. And a lot of, lots of the saints who have become very, very important in medieval Christianity died around that time, one of whom is George. That's really interesting. So this is pre-Constantine, obviously. <laughs> Absolutely. Constantine comes shortly afterwards. Within a few years, Constantine has, for whatever reasons, in the Western Empire where he emerges as a, as a leader, stopped the persecution of the church and he has a deathbed baptism. And it's what people in the Middle Ages called the peace of the church, Constantine's ending of persecutions and embracing of the Christian faith. There's a big, you could have a whole podcast about Constantine's conversion, why he did it, the extent of it and its implications. But I don't think we've got space to go in there today. No, of course. But right now it sounds as though the world at that time is, well, that region at that time is quite a dangerous place if you want to be a Christian. There's a lot of Christians around, especially um, the modern-day Middle East is, 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 is the powerhouse of late Roman Christianity, to be honest. And the persecutions were, if we can trust the descriptions of the lives of the saints written in later centuries, were incredibly vicious. And a number of very, very imaginative and horrific ways were dreamed up of killing Christians at this time. It wasn't just throwing them to the lions. And the legend associated with St. George gives you an extent of just how imaginative people were when it comes to thinking how these Christian saints, early Christian saints, had died. And I suppose that being, brings us on to discussion of how the historical St. George starts to enter the world of legend and myth. And there's a lot more starts to be attached onto 
these bare bones of him being uh, a martyr at the time of the persecution of Diocletian. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's already gathering pace by the late 5th century. This persecution of George and, and the peoples of that area, how far then has the Roman Empire spread and how strong is Diocletian's influence at that time? Well, the Roman Empire at that time is absolutely enormous. It extends from Hadrian's Wall through to the deserts of North Africa and into the Middle East, uh, modern-day countries of, of Syria, Israel, Palestinian territories. It is huge. It has its frontiers in Europe on the Rhine and the Danube. And... There are Christians throughout the Roman Empire at this time. It's concentrated in the Mediterranean, but there is certainly evidence of Christianity in in Britain at this time as well. And George is one of hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians who died during that persecution initiated by the Roman Emperor Diocletian. How good is the evidence about his death? Do we have a good record of, of how he died? Well, actually, from that time, from the 4th century, no, we don't. But we by the 5th century, a legend is starting to develop around St George. Sorts of Some facts are being added in. So by this time, he's starting to gain his military associations. He's said to have been a Roman soldier who was killed in defiance of the emperor Dadianus. I think that's a corruption of Diocletian. And it's absolutely fantastic what's said to have happened to him, that he suffered over seven years, that he was tortured, killed and brought back to life on three occasions. His suffering was such that it prompted thousands to convert to the Christian faith, including an empress called Alexandra. And he became one of the great martyr saints of the Eastern Empire, of the Eastern Mediterranean, or as historians would call it, the Byzantine Eastern Roman Empire. That's really interesting that you mentioned there that he had sort of a trinity of resurrections, so to speak, which is a very Christian kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. That's a, and, but just this thing of him, you know, he's, his sufferings are absolutely extraordinary. And there are some wonderful late medieval depictions of what he went through. But I think it's important to emphasise that at this stage, he is a martyr. And to be honest, that is the reason why he remains in the calendars and the liturgical calendars of the Anglican and the Roman Catholic churches to this day. It's George the martyr. How does he achieve sainthood? Because in today's Roman Catholic Church, I think I'm right in saying that you have to be canonised by the Pope. So how would it have worked in those days? That process doesn't really come in until uh, the the 12th, 13th century. It's basically, it's a saint by acclamation. He has suffered for Christ. He has died for Christ. He has made the ultimate sacrifice. And from that, he has gained the crown of martyrdom. He is one of the athletes of the church. This idea of them being crowned with a laurel in late antiquity. It's a spontaneous cult. His life and his sufferings are such that he deserves to be venerated as a saint. He's got this holy place, this distinguished place in heaven, because he's died for the faith. So already by the 5th century, the story is starting to weave into different directions, isn't it? It is indeed. He's also this key character in the legendary story of St George and the dragon. Until now, we haven't mentioned a dragon. Where does this idea come from? Well, veneration of George spreads throughout the late Roman and post-Roman world, both east and west. And you're starting to get depictions of George with the dragon from at least the 9th century. 
And from a little bit earlier than that, he's been shown as a late Roman soldier and he's becoming associated with other military saints as well, whose names people will recognise today include Sebastian and Morris, who similarly were hideously tortured and martyred because of their refusal to sacrifice to pagan gods and their adherence to the Christian faith. But the dragon in George's story certainly there from depictions from the 9th century. And you could say that in many respects he's assuming this role as being an idealised hero, which you find in late antiquity, of, of good against evil. He's obviously good because he's a good Christian and, is, and dies for his faith. And the dragon, while it doesn't take too much imagination to see interpret the dragon as being the devil. Oh, really? That's interesting. So not the Emperor Diocletian or something else, some other no, symbol? I, I, I think it really is just to evoke the fight between good and evil. Right. Do you know, Diocletian, you could say, is you know, very, very evil because of the things that he has done. And there is actually a brilliant late Roman, early Christian description of what happens to these evil persecutors of the Christians around this time and the hideous deaths that they suffer themselves as a consequence of inflicting such pain and suffering on Christians. I see. These early depictions of the dragon and St George together, does the dragon look uh, like a fire-breathing one or, or, or what kind of dragon is it? It's serpent-like and, you know, we get this idea of the dragon with its pestilential breath. We need to jump a little bit more forward in the Middle Ages and the legend of George and the dragon in its fullest form and the one we're most uh, familiar with comes from a collection of saints' lives completed in the middle of the 13th century by an Italian Dominican friar called Jacobus de Voragine, called the Golden Legend. And this gives full details of St George and the dragon. What's the basic story of that then? It's this knight errand. So here he is. George has acquired these chivalric associations. Becomes aware of this princess in the city of Silene in Libya, the Roman province of Libya, that's North Africa, who has basically been given up by her father as an offering to this hideous fire-breathing dragon who's been tormenting his city to you know, appease this dragon. And George comes along and saves the princess. He pierces the dragon, he doesn't kill it, and he saves her on condition that the people of the city will convert to Christianity. And the princess leads the dragon back to the city, tied with her girdle, and George duly dispatches it after the king, and all the inhabitants of the city agree to convert to Christianity. And then he sets off again as a knight errand to face his hideous martyrdom. So the martyrdom comes in again at the end. Indeed, yeah. He always remains, as well as being this important chivalric figure, he always remains a martyr. Is he always on a horse as well in all iterations that you've been describing? Uh, not in these very, very early depictions. You start to get depictions of George on horseback round about the first millennium or a little bit after. The earliest ones I'm aware of in England date to the 12th century, around about 1100. Right, that's really And he's shown there piercing, um, piercing the dragon in, in some of those. With a spear or...? With a lance, with a spear, yes. Almost like a, a jouster, you could say. Well, I mean, it's a little, you know, you, you, you certainly do have the, the idea of the, the development of tournament culture. But there is this... And, and I think you've hit on something quite important there about the idea of the chivalric St George. He becomes the embodiment of the ideal Christian knight. You know, knights were... Let's be honest, thugs. 
their incredibly incredibly violent behavior and the code of chivalry intensely christianized code of chivalry was a way to an extent of regulating and controlling that behavior and he is the ideal christian knight he is chaste incredibly religious and he actually one of the reasons is so chivalric that he becomes associated with the Virgin Mary. He's often called Our Lady's Knight and there's a lot of medieval depictions of George with the Virgin Mary. When does he become a sort of militaristic figure then? Because knights obviously are probably an early form of a kind of an army, a defence of the king, the realm etc. He has these military associations from very, very on in early on in his cult. And when I say cult, I use that in its Christian sense. It's not the least bit sinister. You know, from the fifth century, he's got these military associations and he becomes associated and soldiers are turning to him as a protector, invoking his aid from around the millennium onwards, if not earlier. Does he get called upon? I'm thinking of the First World War now because I'm sure I've seen some films where, yeah. where, the, where the soldiers in the trenches, uh, you know, leap up and say, "For England and St George." Um, yeah, well, when does yeah, that the, the, start being adopted well, by military unpack, commanders? Let's unpack that. It goes back, you know, you know, the battle cries in the 10th, 11th century, invoking St George in the First Crusade. The Christian armies of the West reconquering the holy places in Palestine, the Holy Land. He's said to have miraculously appeared during the siege of Antioch and to have led the crusading armies onto the walls of Jerusalem when they retake it in 1099. Now, in an English context, he becomes associated with the English army, really most of all in from the 13th century onwards, and it's a royal initiative. And talking about battle cries at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415, the battle cry there, the Premier of the Fifth, is in the name of Almighty God and St George. It is inspiring, I must admit. You know, I can, I can understand that once you've got that image of a man on a horse spearing or lancing a giant creature, that can inspire a soldier to do great things, I suppose. Well, I just think about the horror of medieval warfare and, well, the horror of any warfare, let's be honest. But, you know, fighting with edged weapons, uh, just, you know, the Game of Thrones doesn't come close to just how brutal medieval warfare was. And I just think you turn wherever you can for aid and to think someone is there helping to protect you. And the irony is in a lot of medieval battles between opposing Christian armies, both sides would be invoking the same saints for their assistance. It's interesting, you, you know, you mentioned the First World War in 1914. It starts off disastrously for the Allies. There's an enormous German advance, which is only just held by the British and the French. And at the Battle of Mons in 1914, stories circulate of various figures from England's past coming to the aid of beleaguered English forces, sorry, British forces. You know, St George is said to have appeared to fight beside them, and so too archers, you know, from the Battle of Agincourt and things like that. You know, this is a bit of of Northern Europe that's been soaked in blood where English armies have fought through the centuries. And towards the end of the war, in 1918, on St George's Day, which becomes established as the day of his martyrdom, from quite early on, the Royal Navy launches a raid on Zeebrugge, which is then in German hands. And the commander says to the soldiers, let's singe the dragon's tail, still evoking St George. And you know, it's ironic that I'm sure that a hell of a lot of German soldiers would equally have been 
thinking of St George and turning to him for protection in the German-speaking lands of Europe and you know into the Netherlands. George is what's called one of the 14 holy helpers. He's a, one of the, a group of saints, and many of them early Christian martyrs, whose intercession, whose help was thought to be especially efficacious. So, you know, he's a truly international saint. It's really interesting that, that everyone across the planet, no matter what their differences, are all human and they've also adopted the same kinds of figures for their beliefs and their battles. Yeah, I mean, in the late Roman world, George is a saint of three continents. You can find veneration of him in the heartland of his cult in the Middle East. The main centre of his cult is the modern city of Lod in modern-day Israel, but from the 6th century, he's definitely been venerated in Europe. And also, there's very, very strong veneration in Africa. Don't forget that North Africa was Christian until the Arab conquests. And to this day, Ethiopia, very, very large and ancient Christian population in Ethiopia. And St. George for Ethiopia is a title of an inspiring modern book. There is an international appeal to St George, obviously, um, and English attraction to him dating back centuries. You've mentioned, obviously, the Battle of Agincourt there. Mm. Um, Actually, even earlier. I mean, uh, George is known, known in the British Isles from the 7th century. Firm evidence of his feast day being included in liturgical calendars from the 9th century. But to start off with, it's George the Martyr, and it's the military associations come somewhat later, and they reach their height in the 14th century and thereafter. He's adopted by Edward III as the patron of the greatest of all English orders of chivalry, the Knights of the Garter, and the insignia of the order still includes a depiction of George spearing the dragon. Um, Michael, we've established that... uh... George has been adopted by England as a militaristic figure, etc., and this dates back centuries. When does he become the patron saint of England? When does he become a patron? Well, that's a really interesting question, and a lot of what people assume they know is probably wrong. The patrons of England before that are Pope Gregory the Great, who had dispatched St. Augustine to convert the pagan Anglo-Saxons to Christianity in the, the late 6th century, and various royal saints like Edward the Confessor, Edmund of East Anglia, and then there's also intense local veneration of saints associated with particular parts of England, for instance, St. Cuthbert in northern England. Now, it's often said that George becomes the English patron as a consequence of the Crusades, and he's adopted by Richard the Lionheart, and the Cross of St George becomes a national emblem at that time. Well, that's not true. It's only really in the 13th century that he starts to get these associations with England and with royalty, that you start to find his flag being used. It's the campaigns of Edward I in Wales, where you find English soldiers carrying his banner. And he starts to become a patron, but especially a royal and military patron in the 14th century. But he never completely supplants in people's affections other saints. For instance, the Virgin Mary is by far the most popular saint in medieval England. That's not to say that you don't get popular celebrations of St George's Day. After 1417, after the Battle of Agincourt, 
George's feast day is elevated to the highest possible status in the liturgical calendar with fantastic religious ceremonies and it's a day on which you're not supposed to work so you could say you know it's a holiday in every sense of the word holy day and a day off and there's a lot of civic pageantry becomes associated with St George's Day as well great processions and feasts and you get guilds established dedicated to the same so there is a popular St George by the late middle ages He's very English by that time, by the sounds of things. But um, what about the problem with him being a Roman Catholic derived saint who's linked to the Roman Catholic Church? And yeah, well, you... there's a, the, yeah, there's definitely an, there's an English manifestation and a patriotic English manifestation of St George at this time. He's associated, but as you said, he is also a universal saint. He is venerated internationally. He is venerated across Europe and into the Christian Middle East and Africa as well. So, you know, there's English manifestations of him. It's really interesting what happens to George at the Reformation in the 16th century when England breaks its allegiance to the papacy in Rome. Now, George is exactly the kind of saint that really, really got up the noses of Protestant reformers. He's non-biblical, he's got a later fantastical legend. And some early reformers on on actually both sides of the the religious divide at that time raise eyebrows about George and, and his legend. The great humanist Erasmus says basically it's Hercules, it's a manifestation of Hercules. And Martin Luther says, well, you know, the guy's just an archetype, he didn't exist. Well, what happens to him in England? He gets purged from the calendar of saints under the Protestant Edward VI, the boy king, son of Henry VIII. He's restored by the Catholic Queen Mary. And then in the Reformation of Elizabeth I, he hangs on. And that's because of his royal and patriotic associations. But observance of his saints' day is a pale imitation of what it had been in earlier centuries. But he does still retain these royal associations. He remains the patron, for instance, of the Knight of the Garter. So he hangs on, you know, this this very, very Catholic saint. He's a typical medieval saint. Some sort of respect for him hangs on in Protestant England. It sounds like he's so well ingrained as a mythological, legendary figure and saintly figure that England can't let go of him. He's so absorbed into the national consciousness. I think it's more it's his royal and patriotic associations that ensure his survival. A lot of the ceremonies that had been associated with him in pre-Reformation England just stop. And in churches around the country, his image is smashed, whitewashed over. There aren't that many sculpted images of St George to survive from medieval England that I can think of. And although there are some wall paintings, which I'll be talking about later, they're obscured at this time. But he does remain on the insignia of the Knights of the Garter. And I think that tells you a lot about what George is becoming. He's becoming in a kind of embodiment of England. And that's something that really, really takes off in the days of empire. Where do we see St George at English heritage sites then? You mentioned some wall paintings just there. But are there yeah, several there are, sites that where we can see his image? There are quite a lot of English heritage sites associated with St George. Um, let's start off with Dragon Hill in Oxfordshire. And that's according to a legend going back to at least the 18th century. This was the actual site of the conflict between George and the dragon. 
and a bare patch of chalk on the summit. This natural 10-metre chalk mound is said to mark the spot where the dragon's blood was spilled. And it's one of numerous sites across Europe and the Middle East that purports to, to be the scene of the combat. You mentioned the wall paintings. There's a magnificent mid-15th century wall painting depicting a stand in St George wearing armour and uh, his white surcoat and the red cross spearing the dragon at, at the chapel of Farley Hungerford in Somerset. At Kirkham Priory in Yorkshire, the gatehouse, the, the sculpted imagery on the gatehouse, includes a combat between George and the dragon and also David and Goliath. And I think that gives you an idea of this idea of it being a conflict between good and evil. And the gatehouse dates are around about 1300. The other English heritage sites with associations of George include Lanacost Priory in Cumbria, where there was a Chantry Chapel where members of the aristocratic Dacre family, Knights of the Garter, were buried, and it was dedicated to George. And on one of the tombs, early 16th century tombs, you can see the insignia of the Knights of the Garter. And if you go to Bristol Cathedral, obviously it's not an English heritage site, you'll see a wonderful late medieval Netherlandish candelabra and... On that, you can see there's a depiction of the Virgin Mary and below that, George and the dragon. And it really evokes the associations of George as being this chivalric figure and his veneration, this Christian knight, our lady's knight. I've heard he's also got strong links to that pivotal battle in history, the Battle of Hastings in 1066. We talked last time I was on here about the relic inventory from Battle Abbey, and Battle had a couple of George's relics. Now, the George's principal site in the Middle Ages for his veneration was in the Holy Land, Lod in modern-day Israel, and that becomes associated as being the, the site of his martyrdom, believed to be the site of his martyrdom. But his relics are widely disseminated, and Battle Abbey had two of his relics, including one his purported finger bone, and St George's Chapel at Windsor, you could say the headquarters of the Knights of the Garter, claims numerous relics of St George in fantastic precious metal relic inventories, and they became a focus of pilgrimage. It's a fantastic story, isn't it? Um, it's got so many different colours of woven fabric, shall we say, because it's changed so much over the centuries. He interestingly revives in the 19th century and he becomes a, a manifestation of the English imperial mission but he embodies as well what are seen as been the positive aspects of British imperialism about duty and civilization and he becomes patron of the Boy Scouts because of his chivalric associations as well. It's interesting then what happens to him in the 20th century. As we discussed he's invoked during the First World War and he's seen as being this modern Christian warrior. You know, think about him as well, onward Christian soldiers, you know. And his image is to adorn multiple war memorials after the First World War. But for reasons including the retreat from empire and declining religious observance, Interesting George declines quite significantly. And I, I, you know, a lot of people probably in the 1960s, if you'd ask them, would have had no idea when St George's Day falls. And he gets starts to be politicised in the 1970s onwards. And to some extent, he gets appropriated by far-right groups, you know, with explicitly racist agendas often as well. And the irony of the fact that they've 
adopted a saint of Middle Eastern origin who's universally venerated across Europe and beyond seems to have been lost on them. But there's so much in George's life and his very, very rich legend that is something which I think can be quite unifying. If you think about, you know, I've alluded to these celebrations which accompanied St. George's Day in the Middle Ages. You know, they weren't just religious observances, but there were great civic pageantries and, you know, people just having a jolly day. And they would have been a focus of community of bringing people together, something which bound people together. And one of the reasons why the English Reformation sort of, you know, it's it, it not especially popular in its early stages, and it's by no means certain that England's destiny will be a, as a Protestant nation until quite well into the reign of Queen Elizabeth, to be perfectly honest, that he acts as this unifying figure as a saint as well. And people projected onto him as a saint their hopes and their needs. You know, George wasn't just invoked by soldiers going into battle, but he's a saint which people turned to if they were suffering from various nasty skin diseases. And there's something about him as this unifying figure, I think, that anybody could turn to in times of need, which I find quite touching and quite hopeful as well. Lastly, Michael, we've mentioned... St George's flag a number of times but where does that come from and how is it adopted and then how popular is it these days? Lots of saints in the Middle Ages have their own flags and their banners and it's often a cross and the adoption of the cross of St George you know, the white field with the red cross on it by the English is, doesn't really take off until the 13th century and it's with the English army and as militaristic associations. And it's in the reign of Henry VIII that the Cross of St George becomes the flag of England. But there are lots of other places which had been using St George's flag from way beyond that, the city of Genoa in northern Italy, Barcelona, Valencia, the country of Georgia. It's a symbol which is flown throughout the Christian world. It was by no means unique to the English. And it's really interesting then how the flag of St George is flown in more modern times. Now, I was recently watching on YouTube bits of the 1966 World Cup final. And what struck me was the flags that were being waved were the Union flag. And that was seen as being the flag of England. And I think it's only in really quite very recent times this century that the flag of St George has once again become a specific expression of English identity, of Englishness. Traditionally, it had been the Union flag. And when the cross of St George was being flown, you would most likely have seen it flying from the towers of an Anglican church with its upper corner charged with the arms of the diocese. So it's interesting, you know, the image of St George, the veneration of St George, interpretations of George, and even the use of his flag has been changing over history and I'm sure it will continue to change as well. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week we're in the turbulent late Tudor period discussing the life, death and legacy of Mary Queen of Scots, including her controlled stay at Carlisle Castle. There was a square tower which had been built to house fine chambers for Edward I's queen, Margaret of France, in the early 14th century. And that's where Mary stayed. Thanks for listening. See you next time.